Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Wednesday, May 25th, and our special guest is Sir Ken Robinson. Ken, thanks so much for being here. It's a great pleasure, Steve. Thank you for asking me. Well, it's our pleasure. The Future of Education is sponsored by Learn Central, the project I work on for Blackboard uh, Collaborate, what used to be known as Wimba and Eliminate. Uh, Sir Ken is the is one of the keynotes at the Blackboard uh, World Conference in July in Las Vegas, which is a happy coincidence. Um, I'm sure you'll get a chance to tell the Las Vegas story in Las Vegas, which should be fun. Uh, the education series is also sponsored by my Web 2.0 Labs project. I uh, hope that there's a a place for communicating there that you find interesting, including Classroom 2.0, Library 2.0, and the like. Coming up in Philadelphia, June 25th is our annual EduBloggerCon, the all-day unconference for those in education interested in social media. It's a blast. It's free, 8 to 5 p.m. It's at the Pennsylvania Convention Center, thanks to ISTE. We have wireless and no costs. You don't even have to be registered for ISTE to attend, so we hope that you will come. Also, of course, the Bloggers Cafe and ISTE Unplugged. The Bloggers Cafe is where you will likely hang out. Uh, we, we really love that spot. And ISTE Unplugged allows you to present at ISTE if you've never presented before, and we stream it live through Illuminate. Go to isteunplugged.com to sign up. We have announced the dates for our Global Education Conference, November 14th to 18th. Our 2011 conference, Lucy Gray and I co-chair that. Uh, five days, 24 hours a day. Last year was a total blast. If you missed it, it's well worth uh, attending. It is free, of course. Uh, we had uh, over 400 presentations from 62 countries, just an enormous amount of fun on the topic of global education. Today, we're announcing for the first time the opening of a Teacher 2.0 network. Uh, this is sort of an honor of Sir Ken being on tonight. This is a network for personal and professional growth for educators, helping you to find your passions and uh, work on them as part of your career. So that's teacher20.com. If you're in the Sacramento area, I am holding an experimental all-day workshop on June 17th to do exactly that, look at using the web to find, pursue, and then display your passions. Coming up on the Future of Education next week, Jim Bosco asks, is there actually participatory learning? We have our unschooling conference, uh, unschooling panel on June 1st, and on June 2nd, author Cal Newport on how to be a high school superstar, which is different than you think it is. Anyway, lots of fun events coming up. We hope you'll find one of interest and join us. If you've missed the session, they are all recorded. Last night, Steve Denning talked to us about radical management. You may not think that applies to education, but it's a perfect segue to tonight's session. Chris Gillibo talked about the art of nonconformity, Mark Fenske on the winner's brain. Lots of fun, all recorded uh, in full Illuminate versions in an MP3 files. If this is your first time in Illuminate, we do have a large audience. Uh, so I'm going to give you one quick suggestion. Go up to View Layouts and switch to the Wide Layout. It will make it easier to see the chat. You have some ability to uh, communicate non-verbally using the emoticons at the bottom of the participant window. There's a clapping hand, a smiling face, a confused look, a thumbs down. You can raise your hand when we ask for questions by using the hand with the green up arrow. That's the emoticon or the icon at the bottom of the participant window. It's a hand with the green up arrow. We're now going to let you participate by letting us know where you're listening from. If you've been through this drill before, you'll you can pop it right up, but look for the wand with the red star at the end. Click on that, and then click on the map. 
and it's really fun to have you shout out in the chat where you're listening from, what the time, um, temperature, weather might be like. A lovely global audience tonight, of course, to be expected with Sir Ken on. Look at all of those places, how much fun. Some of you are up very late. Those of you in Europe, someone may be in Israel or Palestine, you're up very, very late. We appreciate your, your staying up to listen to the show. <laughs> it's just fun to see oh, where all of you are. What a blast. I'm, there's no way I can read all of this. We'll have to look at it later. You are able to save the chat. So if you feel like there's something that comes up in the chat, you can either see the chat in the recorded version or uh, at the end of the session, you can go up to File, Save, and Save the Chat Window. Uh, like me, you're probably missing some amount of what's going on. So Ken, I really love this book. It's as though the the limits of the TED talk aren't there, and you can really drill down in depth. But of course, this is a revision of a previous book. Um, do you, you want to talk at all about kind of uh, how the book was originally conceived and then uh, what changed in the revision? Yes, well, thanks, Steve. It's great to see people from so many different countries joining in. It's fantastic. Um, well, yeah, I wrote this book originally 10 years ago, and it was shortly after I'd been the chair of a national commission in the UK. Uh, the government asked me at the time if I would put together a national strategy for creativity in schools. And I got together a fantastic group of people to work on that. We worked on it for about a year. And uh, it was a group of scientists, artists, business leaders, educators, uh, dancers, comedians. It was a wonderful group. And we put together a report called All Our Futures, Creativity, Culture, and Education. But when the report was done, um, there were still some things even though I was very happy with the report and felt that we hadn't compromised in any way the messages we want to put out there, there are things you can say in a government report and some things that it's less easy to include because of the terms of reference. So I wanted to set up my own view of these things, really kind of unfettered by any other requirements. And that led to the original draft of Out of Our Minds, which was also, I have to say, done rather quickly. Uh, we were up against a pretty tight publishing deadline. Um, so it came out and, and it did very well and I think people liked it. And, uh, but about a year ago, the publisher said, as it's nearly 10 years since the, the book came out, we'd like to do a new edition. And I uh, wondered if you'd like to make any changes to, to review it. And truthfully, you know, what I had in mind was a weekend with a spell check you know, and uh, a bottle of claret. And I thought I'd be hand polishing a few metaphors. But in fact, I ended up rewriting the entire book. Uh, in some ways, it is an almost completely new book. The argument's the same, but uh, it's a longer book. There are lots more examples in it. I think it reads more easily. Uh, it, um, it was necessary to do it, firstly because so much has happened in the past 10 years since the book originally came out. If you think of it, you know, Google was a novelty. 10 years ago. We couldn't have had this conversation 10 years ago in this format using this equipment uh, with all these people from around the world joining in. It just wasn't feasible. Um, there were no smartphones, no iPods, there were no 
um, uh, Facebook, Twitter, social media of any sort really. And that's just technology. When you think what's happened culturally and politically in the past 10 years, that it was time to take stock. I think the, the arguments of the original book have become more urgent, not less urgent. They've become more relevant, not less relevant. And I wanted, having debated and argued about the book for the past 10 years, to, uh, to bring it up to date and to flesh it out and, and make it sharper. And uh, so it has new chapters in. Uh, it's completely reorganized. It is substantially, I think, uh, a very different book now. Ken, I'm going to ask you to bring my thought. That will also clue me in to know that you're ready for me to ask another question. So it feels to me that in many ways you are kind of the icon of this narrative of rethinking uh, education. Um, and, and of course your YouTube videos have been viewed millions of times. But I also feel like we're still in this sort of a small community or a bubble of people who are, are rethinking education. The larger narrative of standardized tests and accountability is still kind of carrying the day. Have you seen a change in the balance of power in the last few years? Yes, I have. And uh, I mean, I, I, I hesitate to call myself an icon of anything, really. But but it is interesting that the that first TED talk has become so widely distributed. You know, it's been downloaded maybe six million times now in various ways. But it gets shown a lot at events. It gets shown to large groups as well as people, you know, perhaps watching it on their own. And we think it's not unreasonable to estimate. It's probably been seen by maybe 200 million people uh, in 150 different territories. So that itself suggests that there's a big interest out there um, in these sorts of issues. What I'm always keen to say, though, Steve, is that you know, I'm not making any of this stuff up, and I'm not the first to say it. Um, anybody who's interested in a more holistic approach to education, who's concerned that education is generally based on an understanding of human talent and capacity, that it should be based on uh, the realities of the economic circumstance that we now live in, and, and that above all, it should address issues of community and uh, spiritual development. I mean spiritual in the non-religious sense. I mean the, the sense of a person's um, own well-being and the, uh, the ways in which we tune into our own energies and feelings. Anyone who's got those concerns that we should be educating students in the round, so to speak, and collectively, not atomistically, is standing in a long tradition. Uh, people have been arguing for these things since the beginning of public education well before. Uh, you can find similar arguments in the work of Montessori, uh, Freeboard, Dewey, Pestalozzi, uh, the Black Mountain School, the work of Aldous Huxley, uh, Krishnamurti. Um, there, have been, uh, there has been a strong counterculture to the prevailing uh, dominant uh, industrialized culture of education since the beginning of formal education. Um, I find myself not alone, but certainly with my hand on the torch as well. Uh, these days, and uh, being able to be a megaphone for it. I, I, I think partly what I'm trying to do is reassure people their instincts are right, uh, that we do need a radical reform of education, which is based on more humanistic principles. Um, I can't think of any uh, strong counter-argument to it. Uh, I can't see any sense continuing as we do. But I do feel there's a shift. Uh, I mean, I do travel quite a bit. 
and I get the opportunity to speak to all kinds of groups. I speak a lot, obviously, in education, uh, from all kinds of groups, from universities to kindergarten. Um, I've spoken in the US to the NEA as well as to the Montessori Association. Um, I've spoken to the testing organizations, you know, and I speak as well to corporate groups these days, and there's a reason for that, which you might come on to. But, you know, I don't find myself as it were, being booed off, you know, and people saying, what's this nonsense? I mean, on the whole, people get it and, and agree. And I think there is a strong movement here, uh, which isn't uh, limited to one region or district. Uh, you find it in uh, across America, you find it in Asia, uh, in Europe, the Middle East. Um, you've only got to look at the success of the TED conferences now they've taken off across the world. People know there's something up here and they're trying to articulate the alternative. Making the change is always difficult and um, paradigm shifts are always complicated. There are always countervailing forces and I never suggest this would happen overnight. But I think people need to be reassured that it is happening and that a real revolution always starts from the bottom up. It's very unusual to find governments instituting revolutions against their own policies. You find them coming from beneath and then sensible politicians sense what's going on and, and set out to own it, turn to be part of it. But I, I think there's no question that there is a shift happening. So I'd really like to believe that the rise of the current internet technologies is going to do for education what we saw, what we're seeing in the Arab nations right now with governance. Um, but you quote in the book uh, Abraham Lincoln, and, and I had to laugh when I read in the book because I, you obviously found an ability to aptly put that into historical consequence. And when I listened to you talk about it in a, in a previous video, you were kind of joking about not knowing the history of the United States. But the quote is about the dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. Um, we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves. Then we will save our country. For me, the interesting piece of that was the disenthralling came at the cost of hundreds of thousands of lives. Uh, can an argument be made that these power shifts are substantial enough that they're not likely to be as easy as we might want them to be? Well, um, you know, Lincoln was speaking in the brink of the Civil War, and there are, uh, there are uh, some parallels, but you know, it's, it's a very different sort of situation. Um, I think that the key word there is disenthrall, and uh, I quote it in the, the second TED talk. I'm interested, I, I did a follow-up to the first TED talk, I did it last year, and um, it's not been seen quite as widely yet. I hope it will be, not, not out of vanity, but I, I wanted there to try and say what might follow from it, and to argue that we need a different metaphor, a different um, a dominant analogy for education. Um, but all changes is painful. Um, somebody else I've been quoting recently is Benjamin Franklin, uh, who says lots of wonderful things, but uh, among them he, he talked about uh, the, the three sorts of people, uh, at least these three. He said there are people, those who are immovable, those who are movable, and those who move. And we all know that from our own daily experience. You know, you meet people. If you look at the history of paradigm shifts, there are always people who are locked in the old model, who can't abide change, who see no reason for it, their heads are locked in a way that they can't um, uh, unfasten. And I think we should just accept that and say there are people there that we can't get around, we can't change, so let's just get around them. Um, 
because the times are moving faster than they are. There are people who are movable, the people who are persuadable, who are open to the argument and we should work with them. And then there are people who move, who are actually the people who are the standard bearers of, of a new order. And there are those people everywhere, in education, in the corporate sector, in the new fields of social entrepreneurship, uh, working in the community. There are artists, poets, writers, dancers. Uh, there are uh, people working uh, with disaffected kids. Uh, I'm doing a lot of work at the moment with a fantastic organization called Free the Slaves. And uh, there are wonderful edu education projects happening around the world. I was talking the other day with a guy called Cameron Sinclair, who is the founder of uh, Architects for Humanity. Uh, you know, there, is, there are people on the move here, and I don't think uh, we should compare this to the kind of armed conflicts that, uh, that followed on from what Lincoln was talking about. But what we're talking about is a shift of consciousness um, and a different way of thinking and seeing. And you know, that can be difficult, um, but it doesn't need to be lethal. And what we're aiming to do here in the end is to liberate the spirits and the minds and the hearts of a generation of students as well as ourselves. So there's a big prize. Ken, I know that you have high hopes for technology kind of revolutionizing education. I'm interested in the degree to which you feel that's happening. And I'm going to suggest um, that I'm, uh, uh, as, a, as a huge technology fan, I still have a little bit of skepticism because a lot of the technological solutions that I'm seeing are just the scaling of existing models. So I look at Khan Academy, and it feels to me it's very much just sort of scaling the lecture model or, or TED. Um, are you seeing things that would uh, argue differently than that? And uh, do you still have this hope for technology making a significant shift? Well, um, <clears throat> you know, technology in the end is, 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 is a set of tools. Um, I remember years ago I was on an interview panel uh, for a post. Uh, somebody were interviewing people for a job in uh, technology education. And I, I asked all the candidates what technology was. And I was amazed at the complicated answers we got and, and the vagaries of some of the answers. You know, the people were getting metaphysical about it or certainly rather abstract. And it just seemed to me that technology is the design and use of tools. And, uh, and tools have extended our reach and our imaginations enormously. But tools themselves don't have any ambitions or purposes. You know, a camera uh, doesn't in itself produce great photographs or works of art. Photographers do that. Um, you know, word processors don't produce great novels, but novelists might. And I feel it's the same with the technologies. The, the, the new digital technologies offer tremendous promise, but they have to be allied with the creative instincts and imaginations of the people who use them. And you're right, I think a lot of the uh, the new technologies um, offer tremendous potential, but we're not really yet quite discovering it, I think. Um, and there are a couple of factors here. One is, of course, we're not at the end of the line with these technologies. They're evolving ever more quickly. Uh, they're, in a way, they're evolving more quickly than our ability to understand how best to use them. Um, but also, the history of technology seems to me to often um, hinge on people using a new technology to do the old thing for a while. So I, to talk, I talk about a bit, this in the book a little bit. When cameras, when photography was invented, for a while 
people really used cameras to replicate portrait painting and landscape painting. Um, it was only really as the technology got a bit better and people figured out they could move it around and they produced uh, uh, a shiftable focus that they started to do things that painters couldn't do and didn't aspire to do, uh, which of course also transformed the nature of painting as a consequence. Uh, the early movies were really filmed theatre performances. Um, so people tend to use the new technology to do the old thing for a while. But then they eventually reach the point where they figure out they can do something they couldn't do before. And I think you're right. At the moment, a lot of the use of technologies we're seeing, not, not in every case, there's some really brilliant pioneers of these new technologies, but a lot of cases they're, they're being used to do things we used to do. People are using word processes to replace their typewriters. They're using um, you know, their MacBooks to replace uh, PowerPoint and things like that. But I think our kids have got instincts. I mean, some adults have got them too. Um, it's not like a clear age divide, but but we're beginning to see, I think, um, a, a more uh, deft use of these technologies to think differently. I was yesterday at the Library of Congress, and I mean, that's a remarkable place. I've never been there before. I was, I was speaking at an event. Um, and then, you know, they have, I think it's 470 million volumes, or, or at least um, uh, items in their collection. They include digital materials as well. And they're, they're beginning to look at how to digitize that and give people access to their holdings around the world and to give people ways of sorting and searching and using it in a way they couldn't if they just went to the Library of Congress. And that's, it doesn't replace the building or the books necessarily, but it gives people a different way of relating to them. And that's what new technologies do. They get us into different relationships. And I think the consequences for education are immense, not least they can create different relationships between teachers and students. So there are a lot of times in the book when you give two reasons or three reasons. It's a very reasoned book. Um, it, one of the most interesting to me was the three reasons for the title of the book. Are you willing to explain that a little? And you need to turn your mic back on, I think. Sorry, I'm, I'm so carried away talking about new technology. I'm forgetting how to use it. Um, the, uh, the book is called Out of Our Mind. The subtitle is uh, Learning to Be Creative. Yeah, the, the three reasons for the title were firstly that the, the core argument of the book is that being a human being is inherently a creative process. The one thing, it seems to me, that distinguishes from the rest of life on Earth is the, is the power of imagination. You know, in most respects, we're like every other form of life on Earth. Well, I mean, give or take the old mollusk, you know, but we're, you know, we're, certainly as far as vertebrates are concerned, you know, we're, we are like the rest of life on Earth, and, and that's hardly surprising since we've grown in the same way. Uh, we're mortal, our lives are relatively short, we depend upon the Earth for our very existence and to support and sustain us, and, uh, and we're mortal and perishable. Um, and biologically, we're probably evolving at the same rate as other species. But culturally, we're in a completely different category. Uh, and we are, I think, because we have acquired, uh, developed, these extraordinary powers of imagination. I mean, the ability to bring into mind things that aren't present to our senses. And I say in the book, I'm not arguing that other species don't have imaginations. I have no way of knowing. Um, but certainly there's no evidence that they match ours in anything like a substantial way. 
And from that flows the power of creativity, or the powers of creativity. And we create the world, the human world, in a literal sense. We create it through the values we hold, the ways that we see things, the concepts that we evolve and that we share or we don't share. That's what culture is in the end. It's our shared systems of belief and values and how we, um, we relate and behave with each other. And, and what evolves most radically is our ways of thinking. That's what triggers the great paradigm shifts in human culture. When we see things differently, we have a different way of framing the world, a different set of concepts, a different way of understanding what's happening to us. So I mean in the title, yes, that, that the, the human world is created out of our minds. And I use minds in the broad sense to mean our whole entity. I don't just mean the, the bit in our skull. Um, you know, the, the, the brain, but uh, on its own, because we are embodied creatures as well. We're not just brains on a stick. Uh, the second um, is that I do believe that uh, many people don't ever discover their true talents, their true abilities. It's something I've talked about a lot more in the element, but that um, because of the way we educate people, they're often displaced, uh, uh, separated uh, from their true sense of who they are and what they can be. Uh, they're out of their minds in that sense. You know, they're displaced from their consciousness in some way. And the third reason is that this is partly because of the way we have formed our education systems. And at the moment, reform movements tend to be focused on improving the way it is at the moment, just making it more efficient, when actually we need to be transforming it into something else entirely. And uh, the, the point I make in the book is if we're to continue down our present course, we'd be out of our minds in the conventional sense. It would just be mad, I think. In that third use of the phrase out of our minds, um, you do talk about the fact that um, there that a number of people argue that personalizing education is a pipe dream. Um, and, and you also talk about the irony of people believing that um, um, will improve education, will improve uh, the business climate by improving education in certain kinds of ways. Um, are, do we have sort of inherent cultural conflicts with our sense of what education should be and how it relates to business? Well, yes, I'm talking about that politicians everywhere always think they're going to win votes by talking about getting back to basics. It's rather irritating, I think. If you find people coming to these offices, you now they become the Secretary for Education, and almost every one of them uh, starts off you know, on the premise that uh, the whole thing could be sorted out quite simply if we just get back to basics and cut through the nonsense. And the unfortunate thing is that behind basics, too often what uh, policymakers seem to mean are a group of particular disciplines, usually uh, languages, maths, and science. And I argue at some length, as you know, that, that, that those are, of course, critically important in schools um, and in education everywhere. I, I wish that we weren't so obsessed politically with the so-called STEM disciplines. Uh, I mean, they're tremendously important. Science, technology, engineering, math, uh, of course, they, they're at the heart of human culture. But so too are the arts and so too are the humanities and physical education. Um, and the, I mean, recently the, uh, the President Obama here in the States uh, gave a, the State of the Union address in which he talked about the importance of innovation and then went on to talk exclusively about science and mathematics and the importance of raising standards of those in schools. 
And you see, the implicit message that gives out to people is that science and mathematicians alone, uh, scientists and mathematicians on their own, uh, are the only people we can depend upon to, to deliver us into the future. You know, it's like saying if, if you're not interested in these things or if you're not good at them, then you can wait this one out. You know, we'll, we'll wait till the scientists sort it all out and then you can sit on the bench in the meantime if you happen to be interested in the arts or humanities and we'll call you when, when we need you. Now, I know that's not the intended message, but it's the effective message. And really what we should be saying is that we need to you know, be using the talents of all of our students um, and engaging all of them equally. And that's a big part of what I'm trying to argue for here is that you know, the, there is a great prize to be had by recognizing the diversity of human talent and the, the need to engage that properly. So when we talk about getting back to basics, I just wish that we would. But the basics to me are not some particular group of disciplines. The, the basics are the fundamental purposes of education. And what are we doing this for? And I think there are at least these, that one of them, of course, is economic. We expect people who have been educated to be in a better position to take their place in the workforce, to contribute in whatever way is best for them, and to be economically productive, and to contribute to their own economic independence and to the public welfare. Uh, I think we all expect that. I mean, I absolutely believe that's what education should be doing. But part, what, part of what I'm arguing for in the book is the need to recognize that the economic circumstances uh, that we are currently uh, facing are completely different from those that were uh, that framed the original design of our current education systems. When education was first developed publicly as a mass system, uh, it was to meet the needs of the industrial economies. That's why it is the way it is. But now the economies could not be more different. There was a report published last fall by IBM uh, called Capitalizing on Complexity, which was a survey of 3,000 corporate leaders around the world, not just in for-profit companies, but those as well, but also not-for-profit social entrepreneurship groups in the public sector. And they asked them what were the biggest challenges they faced, and they said, we really need uh, to run companies in a way that deal with complexity. Uh, we need companies that are adaptable. And we need companies that are creative, and we need people who can do all of those things. And that's the great irony, you know, that those people who argue to narrow the curriculum and to make it more standardized in the interest of the economy are simply failing to understand what the economy really needs. So that's one basic. Um, and that, to me, argues absolutely for the kind of education that I'm trying to champion. The second big purpose of education is cultural. We need to enable ourselves and our students to understand the world that we live in, its histories, its traditions, the different ways that people have been raised to think and believe and feel. Um, and we need, as well as giving people a sense of their own identity, to promote a sense of cultural tolerance and understanding. I mean, if anything is more likely to run as, as a species off the cliff, it's our inability to understand each other's cultures. And we see that every single day. And having an education system engaged in cultural understanding is actually of paramount importance, it seems to me. But the third big piece of education, the other basic, is personal. In the end, education is personal. Everyone is different. Everyone's an individual. It's people who learn. It's not their laptops. It's them. And when people say, can we afford education to be personalized, I can't imagine what they think the alternative is. Why? I mean, 
make it impersonal, ignore the people who are learning, well, that is what's happening in the standardized curriculum, and, and we see the results of that. People are being disaffected, medicated, dropping out, um, and failing to see the point. I mean, I think a lot of kids think education's got nothing to do with them, and they're quite right at, at the moment. It doesn't. But what you see everywhere is when you personalize education, that's to say when you engage the learners individually as well as collectively, when you look at how they learn and celebrate their individual talents and look them in the eye and understand how they think, then standards go up everywhere. It's simply a question of understanding what the heart of education is. And the heart of education is the emerging interests and appetites and energies for learning of the students themselves and the teachers who work with them. And everything else is peripheral. There was a report this week uh, from CNN that 80% of the 2009 college graduates had gone to live back home. And it kind of pointed up this dichotomy between believing that education will lead to economic progress. Uh, did you see that article? And, and, um, and I think you do have some thoughts on this, right? I, I didn't see the article. I'd like to. Could you post the link to it, Steve, at some point? I'll multitask and find it. Find it. <laughs> um, but yes, the, the, the declining value of a college degree is probably the single most uh, obvious indicator that the current paradigm isn't working. Because at the beginning of public education, the ultimate purpose was to get somebody to college. And if they got to college and got a degree, then they were guaranteed a job for life. It was a pretty segregated idea. You know, that the, the industrial economy really needed the majority of people to be doing blue-collar and manual work, um, and a minority of people to do white-collar work and, and join the professions. And that's why the system was constructed or evolved in the way that it did, with a very broad base of elementary education and a relatively small higher education sector, a relatively small university sector. And the result of that was that if you did go to university and you had a degree, then you were absolutely guaranteed a job. I mean, a, and a good job, a well-paying one with a pension for life, probably. Um, well, now that's not true, uh, just as you say, and the article seems to suggest, but I'll, I'll obviously read it. Uh, there are students leaving you know, top universities with good degrees who can't find work. Now, I'm not arguing for a second that you shouldn't go to college or that if you do get a degree to find work that you won't be better off in some respects than actually some people are. There's statistics to show that, you know, that the people who graduate high school and college, um, you know, on the whole can have a higher earnings expectation uh, in some areas, not all of them, but in some areas. But what is true now is that the university degree is no longer a guarantee of anything. And the reason, I think, is that the higher education sector has been expanded uncritically on the assumption that the value of the degree is constant, and it's not. It's subject to market conditions. But the other unfortunate aspect of this is that it, with our obsession in getting people to college, we're often overriding the real talents and interests and ambitions of the students themselves. I know all kinds of people who went to college who didn't want to go, who didn't know what to do when they got there, and now they've left, they're still not sure what to do with themselves who would probably prefer to have gone off and done something else in the meantime or something else entirely. Uh, all, what this reflects is a, a, a kind of apartheid in our educational thinking between academic courses and vocational courses. You know, if you want to go off and do something that involves 
making things, being practical, uh, being um, responsible for running something, for using your hands as well as your mind. Uh, all those things are seen as somehow second order, second rate. And that's built into all the European education systems as well as uh, the, the ideology of the American system. You know, if you want to be uh, an electrician or a plumber or a builder um, or work in the fire service, all those things are somehow thought to be not quite as prestigious as going off and getting a law degree. And, well, I can't imagine a world where people were not doing those jobs and didn't want to do those jobs. And I know all sorts of people who do those jobs and love them and much prefer doing them than going off and, uh, and doing an academic program for another four years. And this is all part of what I mean by personalizing education, that we need to recognize that human talent is tremendously diverse and all human cultures depend on an ecosystem of talents. And at the moment, we're losing the ecosystem you know, in the a kind of equivalent of uh, you know, tearing down the rainforest you know, to, build, to, to grow sugarcane all the time. You know, that we're, fo we're focusing on a single crop and we ought to be looking at diversity. I really like the uh, climate crisis a phrasing you used in one of your talks and you also talk about uh, not thinking of education linearly but as um, um, agriculture. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, but I didn't see those in the book as much. Was there a reason? Are you not saying that as often now or did it just not fit with the scope of the book? I think it is in the book, but I, I do talk about that more in the element. And there's a closing section in the element there, and I was just mindful that I wanted the two books to be complementary, but not obviously repetitive. You know, there's some overlapping themes, but where the element looks much more close at the nature of individual talent, what I wanted out of our minds was to look at the broader context. So how do we get here? You know, why do we think this way? So it really sets out to answer a couple of questions. One is, you know, why do, why do we need this shift in, a, in the way we think about education and the way we run organizations? Uh, what are the principles on which that might be based? You know, what are we learning about, about intelligence and creativity and how does it differ from the dominant ideologies of academicism and so on? And then I've got new chapters in the book, as you know, on, uh, on being a creative leader, what it means for running any kind of organization. And secondly, uh, the whole chapter there on education transformation. So uh, the, the theme is there, okay. Um, but as I said, I didn't want to give it a whole other chapter. But the metaphor to me is, is very important. I mean, it is essentially that, that we currently have systems of education um, which predominantly, I'm always keen to argue this, by the way, Steve. I mean, I, I'm not arguing that it's all monolithic and homogeneous. I know wonderful schools in all these different systems, uh, and there have always been great schools, wonderful head teachers, great teachers uh, who are doing extraordinary things. Uh, and and there, that's always been the case. But the really interesting and creative and transformative schools tend to be that way despite the dominant culture of education, not because of it. Uh, they're always resisting uh, the dominant culture and trying to create space within it. And um, the dominant culture is very much about, in many of our school systems, it's about conformity and standardizing and efficiency. It's based on the kind of Taylorist models of, of efficiency that used to underpin 
the uh, mass production systems in in the uh, in the industrial sector. And so what I'm arguing is that rather than have uh, our minds dominated by an industrial metaphor, uh, which is about conformity and standardizing precision and, and utility, that we should be adopting a more organic metaphor since we are organic beings and human culture is organic and unpredictable and non-linear and the future is certainly unpredictable and to the best and most pragmatic way we can engage people in the future is by engaging their own talents and abilities in the present and have them go through their education feeling empowered and confident in what they're capable of rather than uh, lacking confidence and feeling daunted. So the metaphor is to me very powerful because human communities, schools especially, uh, not uniquely but certainly are not like mechanisms, they're not machines, they're much more like organisms, they grow and they thrive under certain conditions and you know, healthy plants for example, this is the, the, the principle of ecology, a healthy plant depends for its health on the environment in which it's growing but it also gives back and, and helps to uh, give nutrition to the environment itself. So they're held together in a kind of virtual cycle, circle of growth and, and fertility. And you see that with schools, that, or, or any great community, is that schools thrive on feelings and values and relationships and motivations. And, um, and a great school also enlivens and enriches the community that it's part of. And if the school becomes barren and desert-like, the heart of the community tends to die away too. And it's really not a complicated idea, this, that in human communities, uh, we have to think holistically. We have to think about how people relate to each other and how they relate to themselves and how the different parts of the system interconnect. And as soon as you start to over-standardize these things, you rob them of the, the vitality that makes them what they can be. And it's not a theory. I see schools all around the world which tacitly or explicitly follow those principles and they're great schools. And all the ones that are not great are the ones where the living heart's been taken out of them. I love the way in the book you profile a pretty wide variety of schools. Who, who fit this. They've built a community, a culture of education within their community, but they vary quite a bit. So uh, knowing that there is uh, this ability uh, to, to build these educational cultures, but that they not, may not be the same, um, what kind of recommendations are you giving um, state or sort of federal level policy thinkers about how to encourage that kind of diversity of success? Well, diversity is the key to it. You know, they, um, the thing is that um, all learning communities, and I, and I use that expression in the book, because I think part of the transformation is not to be confined to a conventional idea of what a school should be. You know, a conventional school is uh, limited to certain age groups, uh, often uh, carved up into different subject areas. Um, there are particular formal relationships that exist. I mean, not all schools are like that, and they don't all have to be. That's my point. There are different ways of considering of learning communities uh, than the conventional factory model of a school. But 
all schools, as they currently are, I believe, have much more freedom than they believe. Um, for example, living here in the States, where I lived in, in the UK for most of my life before this, um, there's nothing in the legislation that people find oppressive uh, in many ways, but there's nothing in the legislation that tells people they have to divide the day into 40-minute periods, that they have to have separate subject departments, that they have to do the same thing every Tuesday, that they have to uh, have a certain you know, uh, framework of time when they have breaks in the morning or the afternoon. All those are conventions which schools themselves uh, have submitted to, but which they can change without asking anybody's permission. And so part of the transformation that I'm arguing people should take seriously is to, in every school, you know, have a look at how you do things. Do you need to do it that way? Is this getting the best out of the people you have? Is this constraining the teachers as well as the students? Because teaching is, from most people drawn to it, potentially a highly creative profession. And one of the tragedies of often these very limiting modes of legislation is that the teachers themselves are deprived of the pleasure and impulse for creativity that they themselves have when they, at least when they went into education. So it is about looking creatively at each school. Um, and in the way of it, therefore, all schools have the potential to be quite different, and they should be. I don't see why they should all be the same. I mean, when, whenever we look in other areas, like the bands that we like, you know, or the books that we read, or, or the clothes that we like, or the place we like to visit, we're not looking for conformity, we're looking for what's different about them. You can be excellent in a multitude of different ways, and uh, every school potentially should be different from every other school. I mean, they may need to cover some of the ground. There's no reason why they should all do it in the same way. I think it's about recognizing what's unique in each community and, and making that school the best it can be. You use humor quite effectively, and it, and it is fun to read the book and hear your humor in the book. Um, do you feel there's a lesson there in terms of how we talk about this as a topic, uh, maybe in terms of sensitivity, as we try to bridge those differences in perceptions of education? <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I do. I mean, I, I, I'm, from, I'm from Liverpool. You know, I'm from a large family, and uh, I'm the quiet one <laughs> in our family. They're, they're just very funny, and um, you know, I find stuff funny, and um, and it's not a tactic. I, mean, I just find you know, if you're in a room with people, then you know, you want to engage them. That, that's it, really. I mean, if you're with, a, with a, a, it's an, a workshop or a class or an audience, it's a human relationship. Um, and you have to connect with that room. And I'm very serious about the stuff I do. I have I spent my entire life doing it, you know. And, and it matters to me enormously. But you can't be po-faced about it. And, you know, you, there's, there's a lot of it that is just funny. And, and uh, I don't think that anything's off limits from that point of view. Uh, but in the end, you know, your um, you know, my interest is in in the, the kind of serious purposes here. But I think people are much more likely to. Well, it's true in any field, really. You're much more likely to engage if you're enjoying it. And certainly, I feel that's true. The book. I myself have a very low attention threshold, and I uh, I tend to listen half if I'm being entertained and engaged, and I tend to read better that way too. So I'm glad you think the, the book's entertaining. I, I wanted it to be. 
Um, they're not not as a bit of a strategy. I just think there's a lot of funny stuff that, that's worth writing about too. So I'm, I'm pleased. You, I'm pleased you picked that up, Steve. I did. I did enjoy it. Okay, so we have nine minutes left. It's hard to have a Q&A with this many people, so I'm going to ask you to uh, ask questions in the chat, or if you want to raise your hand to take the microphone, that you do ask your questions quickly. So I've collected one uh, question from the chat. I'm sure there have been many, many more, but uh, there was one that was just recently posted. So you can either, if I missed the question, you can put it in the chat again, or feel free to use that icon at the bottom of the participant window. It's the hand with the green up arrow. To raise your hand, I'll give you the microphone, and you can ask a question using the mic. So metaphor 56 at me, you're the first to turn your microphone on. You click on the lower left of your screen. Yes, you're a little fuzzy, but you're coming through. You're coming through. Okay, good. Um, I teach writing at uh, at the college level, and uh, it seems to me you were talking about uh, what schools can do to help creativity and innovation in a deliberate way, um, and the technology how technology can be used, like blank screen writing, having students write an essay with the screen turned black so that they can't see and they can't edit as they go, but can just let the ideas roll and not try and get it right the first time. Um, is that the type of things you're talking about? And do you have any other practical nuts and bolts exercises like that? Yeah, hi, thanks, thanks for that. I, I, I've never heard of that one, um, uh, writing onto a black screen. It sounds interesting. Um, I, I'll tell you what I think about this. Uh, the, the, I, I do a lot of writing. I, I don't know if you do, but I find that um, whenever you're writing, there are um, there are processes that some people prefer. I know a lot of writers, for example, who can't write on a screen. They, they'd rather write in pencil on lined paper and then put it on a screen. I know other people who can't write on paper, they have to have a screen. We all have our own styles. And I'll tell you what's, what lies at the heart is to me, is to recognize that being creative always means using a medium of some sort. And very often, the, the way in which ideas flow is to do with the medium itself. You know, some people really get turned on by being improv, and some people don't. Some people get very fluent when they're sketchy, and other people don't. Um, some people have to make lots of notes before they start writing, and some people don't. Um, there's a great book by you know, Julie, Cam Julie Cameron, The Artist's Way, and she talks a lot about automatic writing, and that's the equivalent thing of going on the black screen. So there are lots of different techniques. And the ones you mentioned, I think, are very interesting. And there is a whole pedagogy here of creativity. It's to recognize that being creative isn't just saying, do whatever you want. It, there, are, there are phases to it. And some of it might be uh, doing very speculative uh, kind of brainstorming type activities of that sort, doing it on crisply to begin with. And then there's a process of working on it and being crystal and polishing it. So um, we used, when, when we did the, art, uh, the All Our Futures report, we actually described a number of these different techniques, and there are lots of interesting ones out there. But it is recognizing, those, at least those two things, that the medium critically affects how fluently your mind works. Um, and secondly, that uh, that first speculative phase of creative work is often just the first phase, that there's a need then to work on and select and refine and polish that critically on it. And understanding how that process works, I think, is really important for, for teachers' interest in a more creative form of education. 
I'm going to move quickly here. Uh, Catherine asks for the daily riff. Can you share if you've had meetings with senior U.S. government officials involved in edu policy making, such as Arnie Duncan? If so, can you share how you relate uniqueness of talent, smarts versus the drive for accountability? Uh, well, I haven't met Arnie Duncan yet. No, um, I've been in the same room as him, um, and uh, I've still yet to meet uh, President Obama. But I've, uh, he knows where I am. <laughs> um, but uh, but I, I've worked a lot with governments in the past, and also with state governors here. Um, I think on the whole, you know, uh, and I actually had a very good meeting recently with uh, a man called John Daisy, who is the uh, new superintendent of the LA, Uni LA Unified School District, which is the second largest in the country. Um, and there are 800,000 students in the school district. Uh, on the whole, uh, my experience it is, um, is that uh, with senior politicians I've met, I'm not talking about John just now because he's just in his post. What they're trying to balance is a very complicated equation. And they, I think they begin to hear the argument, uh, but it's very important that they don't hear the argument as another problem. I remember when I did the uh, report in the UK, uh, and I also did similar work in Northern Ireland as part of the peace process. Uh, and, and you know that's not a soft context. I mean that's a, a, a very interesting um, and uh, complicated context. But when we're doing the work there, the, the whole point I think is to help policymakers to realise that when we're talking about offering more creative forms of education, that this isn't another problem they have; it's a solution to the problems they already have. Uh, and, the, and the creativity. Uh, is to me, you know, it's another way into the labyrinth. It's another portal into the larger argument about forms of education that are responsive and personalized and genuinely uh, engage the talents of all the students. And that isn't an additional difficulty for education. It's the way to remove many of the difficulties that we currently have. And I do think one of the problems that all politicians face now is they work on very limited time frames and they're working with lots of competing interests. Uh, one of the downsides of the current political systems is they work on very short time frames, and what we're talking about here is a long-term shift. And it's already happening, by the way. People ask, you know, when will this revolution begin? It's, it began a long time ago, and it's continuing. And it won't be over anytime soon either. It's a, it's a process of transformation. It's complicated, and it takes many forms. And we have to be alert to it and to see it where it is happening. The other thing, by the way, just to say, I know our time short here. The thing with an organic metaphor or the agricultural metaphor is also to recognize that th there is not a single solution that will uh, fix this then we can all go off and do something else. There's no silver bullet. The thing about organic processes is that you have to keep doing them. You know, I mean, if you're a gardener, and it's certainly true if you're a teacher, you can have a great year this year, do exactly the same things next year and it won't work. Because the climate has changed, the people are different, you're doing it again, it's a human process. And uh, you have to keep, uh, keep working at it. And all I'm really partly want to say here is there have been people working on this for a long time. Um, there are generations of people behind us and the ones who are lying in front uh, who are committed to these sorts of principles. And the more people we get involved, the more people share ideas and expertise, uh, the more we see these solutions, not problems. And I think the longer the effects will be, and the more profound they'll be. Maria, I'm going to give you Maria, 15 seconds to ask a question.
Hello. How do you help people to go beyond protesting or away from protesting and actually building, constructing, making their own systems? Um, I think you, you first you have to look at what your current situation is. Um, when I was doing the work in the UK, we, and that report, by the way, if you're interested, is on my website. It's kenrobinson.com, and you can download it. Uh, we offered the very specific and practical recommendations about how that system needed to change. Many of the principles apply in other systems, but you have to be specific. Uh, when I came to Los Angeles, I worked with uh, the LA County Education Service and the LA County Art Service. We put together uh, a detailed plan particularly here for the arts and education. We did the same thing in Northern Ireland for creative education. You have to look at the, the detail of the system uh, of your own situation. I mean, I ran, for example, a large project which involved 300 schools. This is in the 80s and 2,000 uh, teachers and other professionals looking at transformative strategies in uh, these 300 schools. And uh, they all began with a really close audit of what the current provision was in, in the system, in, in the individual schools and school districts. We identified what seemed to be uh, uh, the relevant strategies to affect the changes that people were interested to make. And then we set about implementing it. It was very practical. Uh, there's not much time here to go into the detail of that, but it is about looking at the, the detail of the system you're in and identifying what the real blocks are and also what your vision is, what, what the changes you're trying to bring about. I might just say, by the way, that uh, I am uh, working on a sequel at the moment to the element um, uh, of course finding your element, but I want to follow up out of our minds with a book which is directly related to the last two questions we've got because there are a lot of practical strategies out there, and I think the first step is to get people to share their sense that there's a problem. Uh, I think more and more people are doing that. Um, the next step is to get people to understand and be part of contributing to the design of the solutions. And I want the, our next phase of conversation to be about that, about uh, sharing what works and uh, what the benefits are. So that, that's the next big project for me, anyway. Sir Ken, we Sir work Ken, hard we work to, hard uh, to I'm going to turn yeah. your mic off there. Um, we work hard to uh, have our guests know that they can leave after an hour. So, you, uh, of course, I'm sure people would love to have you continue, but you did commit to an hour and you've been here an hour. So I'm going to clap for you and let you know how much we appreciate your coming. Uh, there are always going to be unanswered questions. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but of course, with someone like Sir Ken Robinson, that's just going to be the case. Uh, thank you so much for coming. It's a great pleasure, Steve. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you to all, all of you for being part of the conversation. I mean, let, let's let's carry this on. I mean, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, and you know, I'm you know part of this too. I'm like you. We're just trying to figure this out, and there are lots of great people out there trying to do it. Thank you so much for that, Ken. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, the recording will get posted tonight. If you would like to save the chat before you. Um, are able to watch the recording, right now you can go up to File, Save, and you can save the chat conversation. I will have the recording up in about an hour, both in the full Illuminate version and the MP3 form. Uh, again, coming up next week, Jim Bosco on participatory learning, our unschooling panel, and Cal Newport on how to be a high school superstar. 
Our great thanks to Sir Ken Robinson tonight, his book, Out of Our Minds, Learning to Be Creative. Thanks, everybody, and thanks, Ken. Deanne, I'm so sorry your students didn't get a chance to ask a question, but I can give you the mic now if you'd like to ask it to the group. Steve, it's Deanne here in Adelaide. I've had a group of students who've um, been sitting around listening to Ken. It was fantastic. I've got two uh, students who would like to ask a quick question, if that would be okay. Yeah, I don't think Ken is on any longer. Oh, okay. Oh, never mind. A bit disappointing. Never mind. Next time. Thanks very much, though, Steve. Shall I get them to ask kids. a question anyway? Say okay. that again. I'm sorry. Thanks. Say that again. I'm sorry. Should I get them to ask their questions so maybe it could be posted to to um, Ken? Sure, and it can be on the recording. Sure, and it We're can still be on recording. the recording. We're still recording. Okay, Jason. Hello, so, I'm Joseph. So Joseph, Sir Ken is still on. I think he'll answer you. Steve? I can. I can. I've got another five minutes. I'd like to have what the students are saying, if we can get them back. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just remember Just to turn your mic off when they talk. They talk. Deanne, can you turn your microphone back on? Yep, we're here. Okay. Um, yeah, I was wondering, do you think if schools push more on um, online work, do you think that would push teachers out of jobs? Hi there, it's Ken here. Uh, no, I don't think so, you know. Um, I think what will happen is that um, but the more we use you know, the, the, the facilities of the internet and online learning, I think the roles of teachers can change in a good way because you know, the role of a teacher isn't just to pass on information that they know and the students don't. Uh, part of the really important role of a teacher is to be a critical guide you know, because there's, there's an awful lot of stuff, for example, online which is um, either not true or unreliable or not uh, verified. So it's easy to go online and believe you're getting good information when you're not. It's like searching any library. You've got to think critically about what you're looking at as well as just absorb it. That's the whole um, process of becoming educated. You're also able to think more critically and with better judgment. And teachers have lots of roles in that respect of helping to develop critical skills, of being a mentor, to encourage you, to guide you. So no, I don't think in any way that the new technologies will lessen the need for teachers, but I think it will change their roles. And can you take one more from a student in Deanne's class? Yes, I can. Thank you. Go ahead, Deanne. Um, hello, I was just wondering what's so great about the new super schools like compared to normal schools in public education system? Well, what, what do you mean by super schools? Deanne, you'll have to turn the mic back on. Well, in Australia there's all these new super schools and I was wondering what they are compared to normal schools. I think, I think 
I think for me and those listening, it could would maybe your Diane tell us a little bit more about the super schools so we we're sure that we've got the right idea. Hi, Kena. I think I need to find out more about super schools as well because I'm not quite sure. I've seen them on the news and they say they're bigger and better and have better resources and that, but I'm wondering like the standard of the education and the people working there as teachers and stuff and yeah. is it any better than the usual education from public Okay, well, well thanks, thanks for uh, letting me know about these super schools. I'll certainly check into them. But I think the point you just made is really important. That, that um, what makes a school great, uh, if not super, is the the quality of the teachers and the curriculum and all of those things. You know, you can have a fantastic building, and it still not be a very good school. You can have a really bad building and have wonderful things going on inside of it. And uh, so, um, I, I need to find out more about the super schools in, in America. There's a big movement to, towards what are called charter schools, which are uh, they're public schools, but they have the freedom to uh, work in different ways to the regular public schools. They're more independent in some respects. Well, some people are all for them, but you know the truth is there are good public, good charter schools. There are bad charter schools. Like there are good private schools and bad private schools. There are good public schools and bad public schools. It's like there are good and bad restaurants. And I'm sure there are going to be great super schools and not so great super schools. I'm sure it's not being a super school that's going to make them great. It's about what goes on in the building, which is what you're suggesting. But, uh, but thanks for the question, and I'll definitely look into it. In fact, somebody's been posting a link to these schools as we've been speaking, so I think we'll all follow those. And thanks for mentioning it to us. Ken, one more, or are we done? Ken? Would you like one more question, or would you like to be a lot of Oh, yes, I'm sorry. I, I just answered that and had to have the microphone. Let, let's take another quick one. I have to go out in just a minute, but I'm happy to take one more. Thanks. Linda, I've given you the microphone. To turn your mic on, click on the lower left of your screen on the larger microphone button. Hear me? Yes, yes, go ahead, Linda. Okay. Um, my, my question is, is, what kind of work are you doing with corporations? And of the work that you've done with businesses, what do you think has had the most impact? And from the business side, which is why I asked. Well, what I, what I, thanks for asking that. It's an important part of the puzzle here. Um, these days, I work uh, broadly across three areas. I work in the education field. It's where I'm from. It's what I do. Uh, it's what my background is, principally. Um, I do get asked a lot to, uh, to talk with corporations and companies, and I work a lot in the cultural sector. I always did, and for example, I'm the patron of the London School of Contemporary Dance and of a number of arts organizations. Uh, typically, what I'm asked to do with, with corporate organizations is to help them think about approaches to innovation and creativity. And the, in a way, it's the same challenge that schools face, but of course the context is a bit different. But the reason that companies and organizations are increasingly concerned with innovation is uh, because, firstly, 
the world is changing so quickly and they need to have um, a, a culture which is those things I mentioned earlier, adaptable, easy to respond to change and, and can come up with new ideas. A lot of organizations aren't designed to do that, uh, so they want to know more about that and I work with them on those ideas of how imagination and creativity relate to innovation and what it means to the culture of the organization. But there's also an increasing move in organizations of all sorts to uh, implement policies which are more um, responsive to the needs of the people who work in them, you know, which are genuinely human organizations. You see that in organizations like Zappos, you know, which uh, the, the, the guy who founded that, Tony Shea, has just written a book called Delivering Happiness. Uh, it's true in companies like Google, it's true uh, in all kinds of organizations. They want more human cultures. And to that extent, I think it's important that we, we see the links here because there's a need for a different type of conversation to have between the business sector and the education sector. Um, I was at an event yesterday, I said, at the Library of Congress where uh, the, the retail chain here, Target, has been funding libraries in schools and uh, it's a really very interesting and impressive program. So it's a meeting the 80 school principals who've been working with them on this program. So a lot of it is about that. It's both looking at individual needs organizations, but mainly seeing, again, how the links can be made across these different sectors. And I think that's a big part of the agenda right now. Steve, I do have to go now, I'm afraid, if that's okay. Of course it's okay. Thank of you so much for your okay. time. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And thanks to the students. And I'm delighted we got time to talk with them. Me as well. Me thanks, as everybody. Well. Thank thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming tonight. Thanks to Sir Ken. I'm clapping again. I see many of you are. Um, I'll go ahead and post that recording later tonight. Uh, again, we have some good sessions next week and through the rest of the summer. Hope that you'll join us for something if it interests you. Take care and good night, everyone.